Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner Brett Boone as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. Brought to you by DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with one of the players who broke the curse of the Billy Goat, current New York Yankee star, Anthony Rizzo. Rizzo! Here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm Brett Boone. And today on the program, I'm joined by a three-time All-Star and a four-time Gold Glove winner. He's a member of that 2016 World Championship Cubs team. Ladies and gentlemen, Anthony Rizzo. Anthony, thanks for coming on the program. No problem. How you doing, Booney? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. We just had your former skipper on the podcast recently. Uh, he's a huge fan of yours. And uh, here's what he had to say. I got Rizzo coming on the program next week. Anything I should ask him? You know, Riz and I, man, um, he used to come in the office. We would talk all the time. And I'm really tight with his parents also. Um, dang, Anthony's is, uh, you know, I'll tell you one thing about Anthony that I think you're aware of. Uh, research all of his charitable work. This guy, when we go to a city on the first day, and a lot of times he'd end up in the hospital, check, talking to the kids. And he did it like, you know, without any fanfare, he would just go do it. This guy overcame a lot. And his foundation, and what he does with this foundation to me is the Rizzo Family Foundation is outstanding. I'm really proud of him for that. He's got a great way about him. He's a baseball player. He enjoys the game. He plays the game. He doesn't, you know, he get upset with himself and sometimes he loses his mind like we all do. But for the most part, he has a joy about the day that I really, he's kind of like a kid. And uh, he and I got to be really tight. And I do miss him. I do miss him. Uh, he was, uh, he's that good of a town. He's big in, in a big moment. He loves the big moment too. But I think the best thing he's ever done is uh, the Rizzo Family Foundation. Pretty cool. He's a big fan. Yeah. I, I, I loved I loved talking to Joe and you know, Anthony, before before Joe became this hip you know, this hip manager with the cool glasses and, and uh listening to cool music. He was a he was a bench coach with um with the Angels in the early two thousands and, and he was one guy that all the players of those great angel teams in the early two thousands always say, Oh, Madden, he's he's cool, Booney, you'd love him. And so I I, I didn't I didn't get to know him over the years that much. It was just more in passing, but uh, we did that podcast. It's, it was, it was really cool. Interesting. And he's got a lot of stories, but, but uh, I knew you were coming on and I wanted to ask him, but uh, speak to him a little bit. Oh man. I can't even, I don't even know where to start with him. He's uh, one of the biggest reasons why I've developed the way I developed in my career. Uh, at the major league level, that's for sure. Um, and just hearing him say that, I mean, is amazing. I mean, we could, we would talk all the time. Um, the best, the best thing about Joe for me was I could walk into his office and talk to him about life. And it's sometimes it's hard to talk to a manager or even a coach about anything else other than baseball. So with Joe as, as the manager, being able to talk to him and, just just talk about life, talk about what you did last night, talk about this wine I just drank, or talk about my parents, and my parents loved them and still do. Um, 
my dad and him are pretty much the same age, so they had a good connection. Um, but as far as just getting to know him and Jay, uh, his wife was amazing. And, you know, we text and talk pretty, pretty regularly throughout the year, uh, especially the last couple of years, not being with each other, but it was, uh, it was a great relationship. And, uh, I tell him all the time, you know, we'll, we'll cross paths again one day. Joe Madden, Aaron Boone. How are they alike and how are they different? They might not be alike or different. They might just be from different different planets. You would know. Yeah. Um, Joe, let's see. Let's see. My good my good cop out with uh your brother is I've only had him for two months, so but Joe was uh Joe did things his own way, which I loved. He always had um, a good grip on the analytics and he also had good grip on the field. Um, and he would, he wasn't afraid to run guys out there in positions they weren't meant to be in and pitchers in big moments that they probably had no business being in at the time. Um, I think he's definitely one of the pioneers of that, of just putting guys in and a closing spot or a big spot and people scratching their head and saying, what are you doing? And it working out. Um, and I always loved that about him and, just the way he was able to talk to his players. Um, and then your brother, he was great too. He, he was, again, it was really seamless for me going and getting traded because I was able to talk to Booney the way I was able to talk to Joe and, and just have that relationship of talking to him and um, not feeling like I was, uh, you know, talking to the manager of the New York Yankees or the Chicago Cubs. I was just talking to, another friend, another person about life. And that to be a player for me and to have that um, sense of comfort to be able to talk to someone like that is, is big, especially when, you know, when you're trying to get the best out of your players, in my opinion, the, the more comfortable they are with everything surrounding the game, the more comfortable they are on the field as well. And Madden, he, we had a really interesting conversation. We talked, you know, the, just the last 30, 40 years of the game, he's been around a long time. And there was a, there was some analytical talk. It was the micro versus the macro, which him and him and uh, Mike Sosha, you know, they were tight and they, and they worked together for a lot of years. But then we talked about exactly what you just pointed to was putting people maybe in a position that, that every manager wouldn't put them in. And he said, Booney, the biggest thing. And cause I asked him that the, the, uh, how do you see the managers that stand out that are elite? So the managers with a really good feel. And I, and I think that's, that is the key. He, he talked about feel a lot is sometimes I just felt it and maybe it didn't say it on the paper or on the computer, but I felt it. And you got to be able to read those moments. And I thought it was really interesting because that's, that's how I imagine managing being is it, for playing all those years. And I played for so many different managers and, and so many different personalities, but the great ones, you know, remain poised, ec- put together their game plan, executed. But they knew that time. They knew a look in your eye. They knew how you responded to a question, what the move was going to be. And I think that's how the great ones really stand out. Like, you could talk about Madden all day. I could talk about this all day. But <laughs> I'll move on, and I won't bore our audience too much. Um <laughs> Parkland, Florida. I want to hear about Anthony Rizzo growing up as a kid. What were you like as a kid? Was it always baseball or just run me through your childhood? Um, 
yeah, grew up in Parkland. I have an older brother, two and a half years older than me. Um, growing up was really we just always outside all day. Uh, really playing sports. It wasn't all baseball growing up at all. It was uh, a lot of it was football, soccer, hockey, basketball, baseball. Um, I was went through a big frisbee phase in high school. We played a lot of frisbee, just pick up frisbee, but always out, always running around, always, uh, you know, people always ask about watching the game before growing up. And I was like, I didn't really watch a lot of baseball. I just loved playing sports. So I, I ended up watching a lot of baseball through just it being on TV, but I was just always outside and always running around. Football fan, are you a Gator fan? Who'd you grow up? Who was, who were your teams? Uh, I've been suffering for 32 years as a Dolphins fan. And, uh, you know, every time I, I get a little glimpse of hope last year, they I think they won 10 games. And then this year they started out one and six or whatever it was. So uh, it's been a, it's been a, it's been a tough uh, go, but I'm very loyal to the Dolphins. And that's really the only team I, I stand behind all the time. Uh, you know, even even though they're not very good right now, I still will claim that I'm a Dolphins fan. And when did that stadium come? When did the new Miami Stadium come in? Because they played at Joe Robbie for years, the Marlins. Yeah, Joe. So Joe, it was the Orange Bowl, and then Joe Robbie was, I want to say, early '90s, maybe late '80s. Uh, I don't ever really remember going to the Orange Bowl for a Dolphins game. So um, Joe Robbie, it was always Joe Robbie to me, and then. I actually got called up and was able to play at Joe Robbie. I think it was called Pro Player then. Oh, or so yeah, that was uh, that's what I was getting to. You played there. Oh, I hate it. I'll tell you what, Riz. I hated. I I couldn't see there. I couldn't. I didn't. I didn't hit well. Left field just felt like. Oh, I I couldn't stand it. They had football lights. I haven't. I I didn't get a chance to play in the new stadium. That's why I was asking. But you did get to play in old Joe Robbie. I did. I did. I I. Uh, I actually, in 2011, when I made my debut that year, we were in, we weren't in, but before I got sent down, we were in Miami. So I got sent down in Miami. So I was very humiliated when I got sent down because it was in front of friends and family. But at least it was the last day of the season or the last day of the series. Yeah, I, I had a few of those on the shuttle up and down, up and down. All right, 2007. Um, I think you committed to Florida Atlantic, but you end up getting drafted in the sixth round by the Red Sox. You're 17 years old. Uh, were you planning on going to college or, or was that a decision made after the draft and you were just going to kind of wait and see? And and what was that, that moment that said, Nope, I'm going to, I'm going to sign professionally. Yeah. I, uh, I think my, the goal was to go to one of the bigger, in-state schools, the University of Miami, the University of Florida and Florida State. Um, and then I also have good ties at LSU. One of my buddies went there. Grown, LSU is my college team that I root for now. But um, the University of Florida, I had an offer, or they said they were going to offer me, and then the next week, because at the time they can only call on Mondays or something, uh, and then they kind of backed out at the last second. Um, 
so I, I, I didn't really want to stay close to home. My brother was going to FAU as well. So that was a huge plus, um, but that was close to home for us. That was a you know, 20, 30 minute commute. Um, so I think after the bigger schools passed on me and I was able to be fortunate enough to get drafted that high, I think I knew I wanted to go the professional route, but the day of the draft was a crazy day. I thought I was going to be selecting the second or third round by the Red Sox. And the next thing you know, it was a sixth round. Um, but they ended up giving me, you know, better than that slot money. And, uh, we just weighed the options and I thought the, uh, the professional route was so much more beneficial for me. Just those years, I'm, I'm so such an advocate to get drafted if you can and go into pro baseball because those years of coaching that I got in the Red Sox system were, you know, shaped me to be the player I am today. Just everything with the routine and work ethic and all that. So I was very lucky in that organization. Yeah, I remember I got drafted out of high school late and I ended up going to USC three years. And, um, I always wondered, you know, because at the time when, when we're kids, when we're 17, 18 years old, we're the greatest player in the world and we should be the first pick. And I definitely thought that. I'm like, what are they doing? You know, I had a kid at a rival high school, went in the second round. And I and I just thought, how does he get drafted the second round? You know, so I, I, I kind of almost was forced to go to college. It ended up, I think, for me being beneficial. But I always wonder what I, would it have been, how different would it have been for me? going out of high school for you, 17 years old, you go from high school baseball and now you're going, I'm, I'm assuming you went to rookie ball, but was that a big adjustment for you? Was there a shock there for you or, or did it go smooth? Um, the first, the, uh, so I signed late, I signed in August. So I only went to the Gulf coast league for like two weeks and got a little taste of the everyday. I mean, I, you just don't realize, and no one realizes until you're in the game or you are a diehard, it's every single day. I mean, there's zero days off. Um, so getting used to that was the biggest thing, but it was for, I think, 17 or 18 days. And then instructional league. So I, and, and Fort Myers, the, the Gulf Coast League was in Fort Myers, so that was only two hours away from home. So it wasn't that big of an adjustment. Um, but the next year and the next couple of years going on the road and, and living with six guys in a, a three bedroom and, and doing the minor league life uh, was an adjustment. But I, I, I still look back on those days and look back and just say how much fun those days were. The bus ride, I enjoyed the bus rides. I enjoyed the camaraderie that you got being in the minors and in the, in the small clubhouses and the terrible spreads. It's just, it, it was just something about it that I enjoyed. While I got a quick second, want to give a shout out to DraftKings. We've partnered with DraftKings now, and they are the official sponsor of the Boone Podcast. Dan? Hey, thanks, Boone. Football fans, who's ready to score some free bets? Now you can when you bet on any NFL game this week with DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. New customers who bet just $1 on either team to score can win $100 in free bets. When a team scores, you score. Hey, if Sportsbook isn't available in your state yet, no worries. DraftKings won't leave you empty-handed. Everyone can play for huge cash prizes all season long with DraftKings Daily Fantasy Sports Contests. DraftKings is giving all new customers a free shot at millions of dollars in total prizes with their first deposit. So why wait? 
Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code Boone, B-O-O-N-E. Bet $1 on either team to score and win $100 in free bets. If they score, you score. With promo code Boone this week at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Must be 21 or older, New Jersey, Indiana, or Pennsylvania only. New customers only. Minimum $5 deposit and $1 wager required. One per customer. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com slash sportsbook for details. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. And now back to my interview with Anthony Rizzo. You know, and I've got a son now playing minor league baseball, and, and I hear, you know, nowadays it's the, the minor league kids saying, we need more money, we need to stay here, we need to stay that, stay, we need we need housing, we need this. I look at the, the locker rooms and the new facilities that these minor league kids have, and I laugh at my son. I said, you have no idea. When I signed in 1990, they sent me to Peninsula uh, in the Carolina League, and I remember getting out of the cab, you know, it's I went over to a little mini camp, how they kind of do for in some organizations. When you get drafted, they bring all the drafted players. You work out for a few days and then they give you your assignment wherever you're going. Some kids are going instruction or some kids are going to rookie ball, you know, depending on where you're drafted. So I, they sent me to Carolina Lake and I remember pulling up at this dump. And going, it's War Memorial Field. It's since been, it's it's no longer a uh, in pro ball, but man, it was an old place. And I'm coming from USC, you know, it kind of nice facilities. And I'm going, this is it. There's a trailer out in right field, which is our uh, our locker room. And I remember after the first game, you know, I'd grown up with dad playing, so that's all I knew is going to Veterans Stadium. And I figured, well, I'm in pro ball now. So the game ends, and and I walk. You know, I go up to the guy that kind of runs the, you know, in the minor leagues, they have a guy, he, he's got about 10 different hats. He's clipping tickets, he's selling hot dogs, he's helping out oh, in, the, yeah. in the clubhouse, and his name was Tiny, and I looked at him, I, I said, Tiny, he weighed about 400 pounds. I said, Tiny, where's the spread? And he looks at me with, with a disgusted look, and he said, hey, Boone, and he throws about 10 or 15 hot dogs that hadn't been eaten at the, at the game. And he goes, there's your fucking spread. <laughs> I went, okay. I know where I'm at now, <laughs> but I, I love yeah. I'm, I'm with you. I loved that experience. I think my first two months in professional baseball, I don't think I slept in a bed because back then it was, you had to move in and there were guys, you know, we got four in this apartment, but Booney for 150 bucks a month, we'll let you sleep on the couch. So 150 at that time, that sounded like a good deal to me. I slept on the couch. I didn't care because all we did back then was get up, go to the ballpark, do what we had to do, come home. And we that that was in the day of Sports Center and baseball. And that's all we do is watch, play our games and, and watch the big boys in the big leagues. And and I love those times. I loved it being a little tough. I, I loved having to earn your way. And uh, I see it now and I get I think these guys have no idea. I mean, we were lucky to have a have a bag on a uh, with our equipment hanging on a rope. I go to minor league camp now and, and they've got these new facilities. Kids get like a big league locker and I'm going, and you've got it so bad, you know, it gets better, but, but you look back on those times and you appreciate it because of how, how cool it is when you do get to the big leagues and when you do succeed. But uh, I'm with you. I cherish those times in the minor leagues. Um, yeah. So you get through the minor leagues in 2010. I'm trying to think when you were called up. 
You called up in 2010? June 2011. June 2000. So 10, no, 10 is when you put it all together in the minor leagues, AAA. You had a big year. Um, And you get traded to the Padres for an Adrian Gonzalez. And there's a name I'm going to give you right now because I think he's been a big part of definitely your baseball life. And that's Jed Hoyer. Oh, yeah. Yep. Um, yeah, Jed, Jed was with uh, the Red Sox when I was there, part of the process of being drafted. Uh, I believe he was an assistant GM there maybe at the time. And he gets goes over to San Diego with Jason McLeod. And I just remember talking to my agent, like, hey, you know, you never know. Because the Red Sox are always stacked. They're always, they're always loaded. In 2007, 8, 9, I mean, they won 7, 13, 17. So they always have good teams. And I, I just remember the farm system being loaded and uh, Jed going over to San Diego and trading me and trading for me there was, was I mean, was amazing. I mean, it was, he, he saw my value in Boston and traded for me there. And then I had a terrible year, uh, big league experience in 11 just statistical wise and he goes over to chicago and still believes in me and he's with theo again they still believe me and then they trade for me again a year later almost a year to the date later and uh gave me the opportunity to be everyday first baseman in chicago and uh obviously that worked out really well and, and my time there will be forever cherished 2013, you signed a deal, seven years, $41 million. And 2014, you become an all-star for the first time. You hit 286, 32 home runs. When did you feel uh, that that you had earned your stripes in the big leagues? And you went from, I got to prove these guys, because we all have that point. You know, when we get called to the big leagues, we got to prove that we belong here. We got to prove that we belong here. And all of a sudden, nope, I proved it. You hit 23 homers in 2013, but 14 was your first uh, really big year. Um, man, the, the, when I think I actually earned my stripes, um, honestly, I, as far as a comfort level, I think it's more just confidence. I don't necessarily think I've earned my stripes because I, I was quoted saying this when I was younger and I was quoted saying until I probably retire, I want to earn it every year. I think the best of the best, um, you know, the Miguel Cabrera, I looked up to Miguel Cabrera. He did it every single year. He didn't just have a one-off year and, you know, that extended his career for a couple of years. He did it every single year. You look at David Ortiz, Derek Jeter, all of these just – and that's what I wanted to be. I just wanted to – so in 14, I made the all-star team and, and had a good year, but I wanted to do it again because the success is addicting. And, uh, you know, 15 and 16 were really good years. So, I mean, it's just a year in and year out to put up the consistency and just play every day and earn the respect. Um, and that's still my goal is just to earn the respect of my teammates. I think it really hit me going over to New York this year and just – you know, talking to guys and knowing that, you know, everything I put in and what I do is good enough and just continuing to do that. Support for the Boone podcast is brought to you by Manscaped. And guys, when it came to the equipment I used on the field, it was so important. 
from the bat I used to the glove I used to the spikes I wore. And when it comes to personal grooming, just as picky, Manscaped just launched their fourth generation trimmer, the Lawnmower 4.0. Join over 4 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped. Imagine shaving with a sleek, well-designed, and optimized trimmer that makes shaving time your favorite time in the bathroom. I'm one of the first people to try the new 4.0, and I'm blown away by the performance, the craftsmanship, and the details on the 4.0 are next level. Also, the underwear. The underwear is unbelievable. They're as comfortable as any underwear I've ever worn. Get 20% off and free shipping with the promo code BOON. That's promo code BOON at manscaped.com. And now back to my interview with Anthony Rizzo. 2015, you're an all-star again. And I think you're the leading vote getter. That's that's pretty cool. Uh, You hit 31 homers. You drove in 100 for the first time. You drove in 101. And uh, then we get to 2016. And and what an unbelievable year. I I can remember it like it was yesterday. I remember watching you guys win. Uh, That year, you're an all-star uh, you win your first gold glove, 32-109. Uh, and as everybody knows, you end up being World Series champions. I've, I've got to be honest with you. I told Madden this when I had him the other day. And I said, Joe, I said, I remember watching you guys. And everybody's asking me what's going to happen, what's going to happen. Just my experience in the game and playing at Wrigley, I said, even though they have lights now, They're still the Cubs, and they still play way more day games than anybody else. And the big league lifestyle is not conducive to day games in the middle of the week. You know, we're kind of set up as we got a day game on the weekend, might have one midweek. And, you know, if you're for a a television audience or something like that. But I I pounded that drum the whole time saying, nope, that's why the Cubs have never won. And that's why they'll never win, because over the course of six months, it wears you down. And then you guys won the whole thing. And I just had to laugh at myself going, how cool is that? It, that had to be and in that city. You know, it's a bear city. It's all the all the success the Bulls have had. But the Cubs are still the Cubs. And, and I'm sure you felt it that year. Wherever you go, there's always Cubs fans. You know, there's always Cubs fans. That was the year. <laughs> the curse was over. Just take me through that year. You had that young team, you know, Baez and Bryant, one of my favorite to watch. And I thought he was a big part of that championship team for you guys was uh, was Zobrist. He had the veteran Lester on the hill that had been in so many postseason battles. But just take me through that 2016 year and how cool it was. Uh, I mean, it obviously speaks for itself. Um, but regarding the day games, Everyone always asks me, how do you like all those day games? How do you like all those day games? I absolutely love the day games. And I think most guys there um, who were there for a while as well would say the same thing because it's – especially with Joe. Joe had so much feel on when we needed to hit and when we didn't need to hit and when we needed to do work. And he he left it on us when to, you know, throttle up a little bit and throttle down. So – the day games, especially on the weekends, you, you know, sometimes you have three, four, five in a row. The five in a row ended up getting a little tough. Um, but, you know, you just get in your routine there. And it taught me personally how to have four or five different game day routines on how to get ready for the game. Um, I know a lot of guys are set on one, but playing at Wrigley and having all those day games, you need to, to lock in on a, at least two to four three different routines daily. But that that 16, 
um, started out. I, I a lot of people forget this, but it started in spring training with the surprise signing of Dexter Fowler coming back. Because um, he was originally with the Orioles, and something happened with his physical or something, and he signed maybe a week into spring training with us, and that was definitely a huge piece that we needed to fill that leadoff spot. I know Zobris let off quite a bit too, but Dexter kind of coming back, we, we rolled into 16 kind of talking like right away, you know, we're going to win. Who, who do we have to beat to win? Um, it was just that talk all year, that visualization of the parade down Michigan Avenue and, and actually doing it. And we get off to a, a crazy start. I think we were like 25 and six or something. Something. I think maybe even better than that. And we just rolled all year. We steamrolled all year. We hit a little rut in, uh, during the all-star break, right before the all-star break. Uh, I learned a big lesson from John Lester. I think I said something in the media, like, you know, we're fine. Just our pitching has been a little off. And he, he just, buried me and i always remember it <laughs> him and i are him and i are like brothers and he comes in and just has the quivering lip he's red as i've ever seen and just screams at me in the weight room and i just got up and gave him a hug and said i was sorry and that was it uh, but so we go after the all-star break we get off we start rolling again and, and win the division and i think like a week into september so we're kind of on cruise control, and then we go to San Francisco, which we're, we're definitely worried about San Francisco because they have this even-year thing going. They won at 12, uh, what, 10, 12, and 14, so it's 2016. Mm-hmm. So we were like, here we go. This is going to be a tough one. Uh, I think game one, Javi hit a bomb to left that just went into the basket. Um, and that brings me – so when you – talk about Wrigley I the first thing I think of about Wrigley Field is the wind and that's why I always think playing there all years it's so hard to win there because that wind can change a game like I've never seen before it's either the best park in the world to hit at and balls are flying out which it has that stigma or it's the literally one of the hardest parks ever to hit a ball out uh with the if the wind's blowing in so we win that game we come back in game four, kind of uh, come back in game four, win against them, go to the Dodgers, another hard team we have to beat. Uh, beat I think we go down 2-1 against them, come back, win, and six. And then Cleveland was just – I mean, that first game at, at Wrigley, the World Series game, uh, you know, when we, when we clinched at home versus the Dodgers, you felt this excitement from our fan base, like, wow, we're back. And like, you just felt like that was good enough. And as players on the inside, we were just like, this isn't good enough. We need to finish this off and we need to win this whole thing. And um, that series was just, I mean, it was just monumental. You had two teams with the Indians fan base and the Cubs fan base. Indians haven't won in a long time. And they're just how happy and how joyful the fans were every single game. Um, and how into it they were, and, and just that almost like a friendly camaraderie of fans, of like sportsmanship I saw throughout the whole series was just incredible. And then winning is just, 
when you when you win and, and then game seven and just the way we won, it's just I could probably talk about it for, for hours and hours. We had Tom Verducci on the story. He was covering you back then. He wrote a book about it. And I always like to ask the player's side because uh, the players in that locker room, you know, people ask me questions all the time. And I say there's only uh, certain questions can only be answered by the current 25 man roster sitting They're on the ground. They're in that locker room. Nobody else is really privy to, to what you guys are feeling, to what we're feeling when I was playing. Uh, but he tells a story during the rain delay. You guys had kind of a kind of a team meeting. And he said the look in, in Chap, Chapman's eyes before he left the meeting and the look when he came out was completely different. Uh, any any truth to that? Yeah, I, I think one of the biggest things that that a lot of people don't under, realize, too, is Chapman gave up that home run in the eighth. And you can attest if anyone can really attest to it. With that momentum and him going out to the ninth and throwing a clean ninth was, I mean, he beat the odds on that. Because when you blow a lead like that in a game like that you're and you go back out there for the next inning and get us through it was like, I guess, a miracle in itself as well. I mean, he what he did that whole second half for us, he just laid everything on the line. We're in there, and, I mean, that rain delay came. I, I haven't really gone back to that ninth inning, but, I mean, you probably we all probably look like ghosts, right? Like Roger Davis hits that home run, unbelievable, um, uh, unbelievable. I, it, pen pitch about whatever it was, and I'm just sitting there like I'm first just kind of drawing, you know, a little sand playing in the sand with my cleats, and I'm just like this curse is real. Like this is unbelievable. <laughs> I'm numb. I can't even feel anything. And then the rain delay comes, and we get together, and we're all just in the in the weight room and we're just start talking and, and, you know, there's, it's emotional. It's an emotional time and there's tears flying and uh, guys just came together there. Like I've never seen before. And, and leaving that weight room, there was no way we weren't winning. If it didn't happen, I am not confident. I mean, yes, we still would have won and could have won, but that leaving that weight room and kind of regrouping for that 17 or 18 minutes, whatever it was, was everything for, for us winning that championship. You talked about during the season, uh, and I don't think you said dreaming, but you had those thoughts of what that parade was going to be like when it, when it finally became reality. I couldn't imagine. I mean, hundred years, 108 year, hundred, not whatever it is. And you're a cub, you're a world champion and you're a Chicago cub. I could only imagine what it, what it felt like, uh, Riding, riding in that parade. Take me through that. And it was, it was definitely a special and memorable day. That you just, like I said about, you know, success being addicting. You want that feeling over and over again. Um, I haven't got to do it again. I, I, that's the ultimate goal is to win a championship. But winning another one and, and doing it again. Um, that day was, it was incredible. It was just incredible and and throughout the whole parade down wrigleyville and then to michigan avenue you just take moments and pinch yourself and and appreciate being in that moment um because it did go fast but i I think however many people were the fifth seventh largest gathering in the world uh human gathering in the world um just how much fun it was and the joy and and 
we knew how special it was going to be. Um, but when it did happen and you saw all the, all family members going to the cemeteries and crying and just honestly, people dying afterwards, just letting go afterwards, like all the aftermath of it and the stories we heard was just 10 times. It, it was a hundred times more than I ever thought it would be. And I, my expectations were through the roof of what it would be like. 2017, you drive in a hundred again, hit 32 homers, uh, 18, you won another gold glove. You won it for the cons- the next three consecutive years. And you drive in 100 again. That's the fourth year in a row you did that. Um, and you get to a point. Last year, 2021, you're, you're kind of a cub. You're, you're an icon in, in Chicago. And it comes to that point where, where you you get traded to the New York Yankees. It, and this is this is an organization you've been with since you're you're a little kid. You're seventeen, or I'm sorry, not seventeen, but basically grew up in the big leagues with those Cubs. Uh, how was that day? I mean, it had to kind of be mixed emotions. You know, you always talk about wanting to move forward and and that success and that feeling you had in 2016. When's the next one coming? Because you don't. There's no guarantees in this game. You win one, that's a big deal. You win more than one, that's a that's a miracle uh, career. But you're always searching for that. It sounds to me, uh, talking to you, that you're always searching for that next time that you you can you can go for it and win again. You always know when you go to New York, be a Yankee. There's always a chance uh, playing for that organization. But there had to be some emotions moving over to New York. How was that for you last year? Yeah, it was. Uh... It was crazy. I mean, I, I've stated, I stated time and time again how I wanted to stay with the Cubs and be a Cub for the rest of my career. And obviously it didn't work out. Um, and throughout the season, um, there was a bunch of rumors and trade rumors and just never, honestly, never thought that I'd be one of those guys to get traded. And then the last week just started getting this funny feeling of like, they're going to blow this whole thing up. And, uh, I didn't think it, it would be as, as I, I just didn't think they'd blow it up to that extent. Uh, so when I did get traded, it was really shocking. I mean, it wasn't, I mean, it was, it was shocking, but when I did get traded and get called in the Rossi's office and Jed's there and tells me it's the Yankees, that's when I like was even more shocked because the rumors at the time were just all Red Sox, Red Sox, Red Sox, Red Sox. So, I thought if, if there's anyone that's going to trade for me, it's going to be the Red Sox. And then the Yankees kind of came up, I guess, last second. When he told me that, I was like, man, that's incredible. Like, just, I was shocked. I mean, I grew up down here in Florida, but I have a lot of strong, all my family is from New Jersey, right outside of the city. And they're all, you know, monster, monster diehard Yankee fans uh, growing up. And I grew up a Yankees fan and a Marlins fan growing up. And, just being able to to take that in that day was insane um, because I'm leaving basically my heart behind in Chicago because just the love I have for that city, that fan base, the people there. I just became a Chicagoan and, and just loved everything about the city. And then, boom, you're going to New York on a flight playing the next day uh, was just insane. You know, it was emotional. Um, but I think what really, I mean, luckily for me, the Yankees were, we were down in Miami. So I got to stay home and kind of 
adjust for a few days. Played it, played at the Marlins Park quite a bit. So that comfort of just being able to go in and know where to go, uh, I think really helped with that transition. Um, but yeah, that, that 24, 48 hours was just insane. How'd you like New York? I mean, I only, I only know it from a, you know, a visitor. I always wanted to, before it was all said and done, I never got that opportunity, uh, to be a Yankee for, for, uh, you know, be on the home side because I had a lot of battles on the other side. You talk about, it, there really is a curse, believe me. I, I've had some postseason in, in Yankee Stadium where I, I truly believe, not a curse, but there's ghosts in there that take over. I've been disappointed a few times through the years, but I always wanted, man, when I knew I'd, I'd see on that calendar when we're going to New York and I just used to get so excited. There's nothing like playing Yankee Stadium in that city, something about it, just walk down the street. I remember we used to stay at the Hyatt, the Grand Hyatt, and I'd just walk down the street, uh, go get a coffee or something in the morning. And and sure enough, there's people across the street yelling at me, Boone, you suck. And we're going to we're going to kick your ass. I, I just loved it. I mean, it would put a smile on my face. I couldn't wait to get to the ballpark. I just love playing in New York. Everybody doesn't love it, but I did. I don't know. I never played, you know, there uh, as the home team and did it every day. But I remember my time there. I couldn't wait. That was always marked on my calendar every year when we were going to New York because it's just, man, it's just, it's just baseball fans. Boston was all right because I, I didn't like hitting there. It wasn't Fenway wasn't good to me uh, offensively, but I just loved Yankee Stadium. Did you like? Did you like being on that home team in New York? I loved it. Uh, I was the same way. So I only played at Yankee Stadium in 2014, and it was in April. We got rained. It was a two-game set. We got rained out the first game and had a doubleheader where it was like below 30. We faced Pineda and Tanaka. Um, so that was my only experience of, of Yankee Stadium uh, playing-wise. We were supposed to go, I believe, in 20, um, but obviously COVID hit. So, by always going to the Mets, I always loved playing that city field. Um, always loved going into the city and enjoyed it. And um, just being able to put the, the Yankee jersey on was, was definitely special because it hit more home for me. Um, just growing up with a lot of Yankees fans and me being a Yankees fan. Um, but then just walking into the clubhouse, you know, I think, I think the, all the experience that I've gained playing – being able to walk into the clubhouse and talk to guys who I already know some of the guys on the team um, and just being welcomed with open arms by judge and Stan and Garrett Cole, EJ, Tyler Wade, Odor. I mean, I can just go on and on Kluber, all great guys. that just wanted to win. I just want to win. And being able to talk to them was just so easy. I almost felt like I was there for, I know I was only there for two months, but I felt like I was there for a, you know, over a year, um, just the way we kind of grew together. So um, Yankee Stadium is electric. I was really looking forward to the Red Sox-Yankees rivalry, and that definitely lived up to it. I know they beat us in the wild card game, but those games were a lot of fun to be a part of, always watching on ESPN growing up. So being part of that was really cool. And just the whole – the whole lifestyle of being a Yankee and the whole, the culture there of, of winning, winning isn't even good enough there. It's, it's, it's just the ultimate, uh, it's the highest expectation you could have 
uh, and being a Yankee is is the epitome of that. And it's just it's what you want. You want to win year in and year out. And knowing on the Yankees, they're going to put the team in a position every single year to win. Turn to a little more serious subject. 2008 in in the spring, you're diagnosed with uh, Hodgkin lymphoma. Um, and the only and the only experience I have that with with cancer is is my grandmother, and she passed away years ago. But I, I was at ironically, I was at Wrigley Field, and my dad was the bench coach of the Reds in the in the mid '90s. And I remember I'm facing Randy Myers. And I think it's two to one game, ninth inning, Randy Myers is the closer. And, and you know, when you just feel like you're going to do something, I get to a two Oh count. He throws me a fat heater out over the plate. <laughs> I, you know, I, I take a great swing and just miss it pop up. I think it goes to the warning track game over. And I'm, I can't believe I missed that pitch. I walk up into the locker room and my dad's in the training room at in the visitor side of Wrigley. And I don't, I don't know if it's changed that much, but it, you know how small it is over there. They're kind of challenged for space. And my dad's in the training room and he's got tears in his eyes. Now I've never seen my dad cry before. And I, and I, I didn't know what to do. I was so uncomfortable that I said, dad, I, I meant to take him deep. I'm sorry. You know, I knew that what wasn't why he was crying. He said, yeah, grandma's been, you know, she's been diagnosed with ovarian cancer and, and uh, they give her two months. Well, my grandma ended up living 14 years, uh, but I knew how serious it was. And in, in the moment, uh, I couldn't imagine being a kid or having a son uh, that got that diagnosis. Um, how was that for you? Uh, it was crazy. It was uh, one of those things that you just, I mean, I was seven, I was 18. I broke in with the full season team. So I, I broke spring training with the full season team, which was a really big deal. Cause a lot, a lot of high school guys at the Red Sox didn't break the full season teams historically there. Um, I was, I was raking, I was hitting like 370 through April um, and then at the end of April, early May is when, you know, I started feeling, I guess, symptoms. Um, I kind of just blew it off because I was hitting so well. And, you know, when you're hitting well, you just change nothing. So right. um, it, it originally was a kidney. Uh, we thought it was just something wrong with my kidneys. And just thinking, you know, take some antibiotics, be fine, get back on the field a couple of days. And we go up to Mass General in Boston and run additional tests, and they, they're doing the kidney biopsy just to confirm they thought what it was. And I remember as clear as ever being on there and getting the kidney biopsy, and the doctor who was doing or the nurse who was doing the biopsy kind of stopped, called the other nurse over and like told him to look at this, and I was like, that probably can't be good. And then they took me through – you know, PET scans and CT scans. And they told, then they came in, you know, a few hours later and told me that it was that the cancer. And that was just, I mean, I didn't know what a cancer was at the time. I was 18 years old. I just got drafted. I was on my way. I was invincible. No one could, no one could stop me. Um, and then boom, you're done for the year. Uh, this is what you have to do. Here you go. And it was just like, Oh man. And then, even worse is you just see my parents and my brother and, and 
my grandmother and just everyone around me just kind of how much they were suffering, I would be strong for them because I didn't want them to worry about me um, because I saw how much of a toll it was taken on them. So just that whole uh, experience of finding out was really difficult. But the way the doctors explained it to us at Mass General were they were just like, here you go. This is the diagnosis. This is what you have to do and how enthusiastic they were about it and how confident they were about it um, made us definitely more comfortable. You know, a social worker comes in and explains everything to a T to us about what chemo is like and side effects and certain people have certain side effects. So um, when they asked us, when you want to start, I was like now tomorrow. And we started the next day and, and went on with it and just attacked it head on and really never gave time to pity or feel bad it was just let's get better and and you know when i remember sitting in the in the hospital with my mom and lance armstrong and the live strong foundation was huge at the time and i go when when i get better we can start our own foundation and really help out and and that will be my goal and uh that's definitely come to fruition and and start a foundation to help out with pediatric cancer and um and I'm forever grateful. I mean, I'm not forever grateful that I got cancer, but I think getting cancer definitely um, has helped me help so many more people in my life that I, I don't think I'd otherwise be able to help. Yeah, that's, I mean, talk about putting life into perspective. And, and like I said, from a father's side now, uh, to have your son or your daughter diagnosed, I, I couldn't even imagine it. It happened to you, and as at the top of the show, you know, Joe talked to 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 your character and and all you do, and and the the charity work, the off the field work. Because a lot of times we we just see what you do on the field, and you know, and when we strike out, when we go for four, we stink, and we hit when we hit a big homer, we're the greatest player of the world. But but to see and hear about what you've done off the field, I know uh, you have the Rizzo found family foundation uh you do a lot with the make a make a wish kids foundation i believe or that's yes, not even we right. do we, we do a lot with uh a lot of different organizations um the main one now is is the anthony is a family foundation and um the main thing with ours is we, we donate a lot to hospitals for cancer research and then we donate even more to families directly affected um, by cancer. And when I say that, I mean, you know, when I, you were talking earlier about going to college and what it would be like if it was different. And the first thing I thought of was if I went to college, I would have been diagnosed with cancer. Who knows if FAU would have paid for that. I don't know how in the world my parents were going to pay for all those medical bills. The Red Sox and I'm thankful to this day, picked up all of our medical bills for us um, and how much different my life would have been. So giving back to families that can't necessarily afford the bills that are making ends meet just to get their kid another chemo round is just, it's crazy to me. So to be able to help with rent, to be able to help with, you know, mortgage payments, car payments, schools, um, we go kind of, we have social workers that will kind of have them fill out paperwork and, and really give them some grants to help them out and take the pressure off. You know, am I going to save my kid's life or am I going to pay my bills? And that's, that's one of the, the main 
missions of our foundation now. That is so awesome. Uh, turn back to your high school. A couple of years ago, everybody knows there's that tragic shooting. I had no idea you went there. You went to Stoneman Douglas. Uh, I think they had you back there to give a speech. You met with some of their survivors. I remember watching it on TV. Um, you end up donating money to your school. And, and now that uh, I believe the baseball field's named Anthony Rizzo Field. Um, but just as an American watching that happen, when it did happen, uh, you know, those, the, the shooting of all those kids, being your high school, it's got to be a little bit different through the lens of your eyes when you're watching uh, on TV, what the rest of us are watching. Yeah. I mean, it hits home when it hits home. It's always, it's, you always take it deeper. Right. And uh, yeah, I mean, 17, 17 kids ended up being shot and, and unfortunately killed, but the, just the whole community there was just in Parkland. It, you, just not built for that type of tragedy. And that's well, at least how I felt. But to see that community come together afterwards was, was so, I mean, I, I, I it's kind of weird saying inspiring how strong and how the togetherness of the community was um, that day. And, and just, you never think it's going to happen to you. Like uh, even, even when I was sick, you never think you're going to get sick. You never think anything bad can happen um, until it does. And that's just another example of that and seeing that unfold and seeing, you know, even, even yesterday with the Christmas parade and people getting trampled there, it's just, it's, it's really sad and you just want to be there to help. And that's what I was there, you know, just to be there. I I grew up there. This is my home. Uh, Parkland is where my roots were planted and will always be planted. And, um, to go back and talk and just to help out in any way I could was meant a lot to me. And then, uh, you know, I think it just goes back to, to not taking dates for granted, anything. And, and Joe said that, and I appreciate him saying that just showing up to the park every day and being in a good mood and being happy and, you know, going over four, I guess any baseball player goes over four gets pissed off. You know, you go for eight over 12, you just, the anger mounts up, but coming in every day and putting a smile on your own face, putting a smile on other guys' face and being, you know, in an upbeat mood is something I'll never take for granted just because of two scenarios in my life that have happened that you just look back and just say, you know, it is, this could be me. This could be you. We can walk into a grocery store tomorrow. You have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow, let alone in five minutes from now. So, um, I try to just enjoy every moment on the ride. Yeah, it is amazing. And and once again, another thing that just puts life into perspective. One day it's here, one day it's gone. You know, don't take anything for granted. Uh, you got a chance. We, we mentioned you played for uh, – came to the Yankees last year, your first time in the American League. And and now I think – you know, I think they're going to uh, – they're going to adopt the DH, I think, don't you think, in both leagues? I, I think in 2021 um, – I think enough people are calling for it. Offensive fans like offense. Uh, for me, as I'm kind of a purist when it comes to our game, and and I like how the rules have been set up for years and years. 
but I also never want to miss another uh, Big Poppy or Tease or, or an Edgar Martinez or Frank Thomas the last 10 years of his career be, just because of the 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 DH. And, and if there wasn't a DH, I wouldn't have played. You know, I remember I played with Tony Gwynn and uh, he was getting to the end and he said, Booney, I just, my legs, you know, my knees. I said, Tony, we got to get some weight off you. And I but this guy could hit standing on his head. And I said, why don't you just go to the American league? He never wanted to, you know, he, he grew up in that Padres organization, never wanted to leave there. Um, you think the DH is going to be adapted and, and was there a difference for you, whether you're in the American or the national league? Um, yeah, I think, I think there, the, the DH will be adapted, whether it's this year and years to come. Um, I think, honestly, I think it's a huge difference on so many different aspects of the game that people, I don't know if they realize, um, I want to say, I think Garrett told me this, Cole, about the difference between the National League and the American League. I think the ERA is almost one point lower than the American League, and it makes total sense. In the National League, you can pitch around, you know, you really, you can start pitching around the five hole hitter, six, seven, eight, uh, and pitch around guys to get to that pitcher. If you're in a jam early in the game, knowing you have the pitcher coming up, um, and just the turnover in the American league, there's no break, you know, on, on, you know, when I was with the Yankees, there was, there was no break when, when we were hitting there's one through nine. I don't know who you're pitching to, uh, and, and that's a scary thing as a pitcher when you're like, man, where where am I getting a break? Because, you know, if you can pitch around the seventh hitter or the eighth hitter and get the pitcher out and then reset for an inning, okay, I can try to maneuver this lineup, get a first out um, with no one on. But in the American League, when there's no break and the, the pitchers have to just kind of wear innings, where in the National League, if the, the uh, pitcher spot comes out, comes up, you, there's a pinch hitter, and you get that reliever out. Well, in the American League – I've noticed that guys had to just wear innings. And when guys are wearing innings, that's good for hitters because that's when you get to feast and uh, take advantage of some uh, some of the situations that, that arise. And this game's not easy at all. So anytime you could be facing a guy that's a really good matchup for you that maybe shouldn't be in there in that situation or is overstretched is, is always a plus for the hitter. Got your off season. I'm sure you're enjoying it. Take me through. Take me through an Anthony Rizzo off season. How you get ready for for the next year, 2021? Because it's changed over the years. You know, I started training and and really, I changed my all. Uh, you know, every my off season completely changed, and I did started doing stuff completely different from a preparation standpoint. The second half of my career, and that's right. You know. Starting in 2000, the game has evolved so much to 2021 from diet to to just technology to to uh, I don't know, just a, a lot more knowledge, a lot more things out there, a lot more. Wow, this is really cool. I, I look at you guys and, I, and I'm envious in certain ways thinking, man, I wish I had that what they have at their fingertips, that intel. Um, what does Anthony Rizzo do getting ready for for each and every season? Um, I've been lucky enough for the last 14 years to be with my same trainer and we've evolved together, um, as far as workouts and, and when to, you know, really start pounding and put on muscle and, 
to taper off and stay functional. And I think we've always done a really good job at that. Um, so we, my off season for me for, for pretty much the last 10 years, I'll, I'll swim a couple times a week. I'll go into the gym five, six times or five times a week. And we'll go to the field twice a week to just do agility and, and movement. And coming off the season, I feel like, now I take usually every year I actually take less and less off because every year I feel like when I get home and, and just sit around for, you know, five to seven days now it takes, I'm just automatically getting itched to start getting back in the gym and just working out and just feeling good. Um, and I think now in the off season, the main priority is just to feel as good as you can. Um, you know, you got guys that always say every year, you know, I'm in the best shape of my life, yada, yada, yada. But it's just all about feeling good and feeling ready to go into the season. And as far as um, baseball goes, I think last year, honestly, was the earliest I started hitting in like eight years. And it was in December. Usually I wait till mid-January to start hitting. Um, and I hadn't had my greatest year, so I'm definitely going to go wait till January to start hitting. But baseball-wise, for me – I haven't really made a lot of swing changes or, or, you know, mechanical changes. So picking up the swing comes naturally and, and knowing that I was going to be the opening day starter pretty much every year was very comforting knowing I can go into spring training and ramp up. But it, it's, it's so humbling now because you get the spring training ready to ramp up and guys are at their in mid-season form it seems like and you're like man did I do and I don't care how much you do in the offseason always I go man did I do enough again this offseason like these dudes are coming in just throwing 95 with sliders and curveballs in their first uh live batting practice session and I'm just like what, what happened just to a fastball and letting you know where it was going um but yeah, they're trying. I they're trying to embarrass you. <laughs> I don't want to be embarrassed. I know that yeah. my first week of spring, I went into that take mode because I'm like this kid on the mound. I don't know who he is, but I know he wants to strike me out, <laughs> and I don't want to strike out because it's embarrassing. So I'd pretend, you know, I'd I'd give it that. Oh, I'm just going to look at some pitches. You know, I'm a veteran player. That's what we do. Real, <laughs> the real truth. I don't want him to embarrass me right now. <laughs> Yeah, the, that competitiveness, it, no matter what, that first live BP, you're like, all right, I'm, I'm going to take, and you do end up swinging, exactly like you said. It's like, I don't want to be embarrassed because my first swing, my, fir- my first swing, I barreled the ball once, and it was the left center, and I was like, this is going to be incredible. Uh, and then I think I continue to miss, like, the next three live batting practice sessions. But <laughs> my main thing every offseason is I actually – it just literally dove into this this morning a little bit about what my strengths were from the last year. And I kind of now will go over through my whole career of what my strengths have been and then what my weaknesses have been. So just kind of dissecting what went really well last year and what didn't go well last year and why. And there's just kind of a picture you can paint, especially the beauty of, you know, technology now is you have access to all this stuff. And I really try to do my best of being balanced and, and not digging in too much because a lot of it I think could be harmful, but a lot of it could be helpful. So I'll just dig into 
you know, certain counts. Last year, I wasn't swinging early OO first righties at all, which I don't know why. But now being able to look back at it, making those little adjustments and just seeing, okay, this was really good and this is really bad. And then I'll take that into my thought when I do start hitting and just start, you know, visualizing, making those adjustments. Very cool. Anthony Rizzo, I uh, appreciate you coming on the podcast. Really interesting stuff that the work you do off the field, uh, you should be commended for. It's it's awesome. All you've been through, great career so far. You're going to this offseason. Uh, you're a free agent, you know, and we talked off camera. And I, no matter what happens, I, I know you're going to land on your feet, and it's going to be positive, uh, whoever you end up signing for. So I want to wish you good luck this winter. And what we do each and every Boone podcast is the end. We bring in Dan Levy to ask a question from the fans. Dan? Hey, guys. How are you? I'm doing well, Dan. How are you? Okay, we're doing well. A couple things. We got a couple guys because I am in Chicago, and we got people that wanted to reach out to you. So I got one from Frank in Wrigleyville, and he wants to know this. Even though you guys busted the curse of over 108 years, are you disappointed that there wasn't more World Series wins that came in from Chicago? Uh, that's a great one, actually, because, you know, my whole, the whole narrative, um, leading up to 2016 was just win one before I die, just win one before I die. And I think it was not even five days after when the first, uh, fan said, you're going to do it again next year though. Right. (laughs) And I just laughed and I was like, listen, you're welcome. That's what I said. I go, you're welcome that I just won one before you die. Uh, because that's all I ever was. And I think in, in 17, we went to the National League Championship Series and, you know, we, we gave everything we had. So I am I disappointed? I can't ever say yes because that's not the way I am. I think every day our team put out its best foot forward. And um, I just I just – think it's so hard to win at this level at the big leagues that um, it just takes every single player on that team, every single personnel, every coach, every single person uh, to win. And I think that's why you really haven't seen seen teams repeat. I know the Red Sox have won a few, uh, you know, staggered, but seeing teams repeat is just so – incredibly hard to do and uh you know not winning we we wanted to win more we definitely did but i think there's no regrets uh with the work that we, that i put in and we put in and a second part of that question would you like to see yourself come back to chicago at some point maybe finish out your career here um you know i i think uh i love chicago i could see myself uh going back there and living there maybe one day i think uh you know, there's a lot of after baseball careers that could take place that maybe one of my careers after baseball would be there, even maybe during baseball. I have no idea. But um, I think my time in Chicago will never be forgotten by me, uh, the love I have for that city. And I have no idea what tomorrow is going to hold, but I know for sure that the memories I made in Chicago will last forever. Anthony Rizzo, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, sir. We appreciate it. No problem. Thank you, guys. Mailbag. All right, Boone, you know that sound, don't you? 
That is mailbag time for Dan. Or for me. Mailbag for you. It's for me to grab out of it and give to you. And this one comes from Michelle in Washington. And she wants to know, Boone, what are you binging these days? Oh, man, I've got so many. So during that, during the COVID, I had so many shows that I watch. I got into a bunch of new shows I never even knew existed, but I've ran them all. <laughs> I've ran them all through. I'm waiting for all these, you know, next seasons. They never come. But one just came out recently. I love it. I think it's season three, Succession. Really good. I heard that's supposed to be really good. Really good. So, but it only comes out. It's not on Netflix. I think it's HBO. So it's, uh, it's only every Sunday, so I'm caught up, so I got to wait Sunday. Now, you know, now I got to wait till next Sunday, like the old days. <laughs> On Netflix, you can just binge watch and keep going and going, but HBO, they're making you wait. So uh, Succession's what I'm hooked on now. Very cool. Very cool. And, you know, the show You is actually pretty good, too. I don't know if you've seen that kind of show, but it's kind of has like a Dexter feeling to it. I think you would like it, to be honest. I, know, I think you're a Dexter guy, right? Yeah, but I need I need another one, so I'll check it out. Check out the show you and stalkerish, and it's pretty good that way. It's not as fun as Dexter, but I think you'll actually enjoy it just as much. All right, well, that's going to do it for this here Brett Boone Podcast. My name is Dan Levy. I'm the technical director, producer, and voice of the Boone Podcast. The EP executive producer is Rich Herrera. Digital content gets uploaded by Liz Landry. Please share the Boone Podcast with neighbors and friends, and make sure you subscribe to the Boone Podcast so you never miss an episode of the show. While you're at it, give it a five-star rating. Share your feelings about the show by leaving a review on whatever platform you consume the show. For all of us here on the Boone Podcast, I am Dan Levy. Thanks for listening. See you on the next one.